This is Lecture 5b on Deuteronomy by Robert Benoit of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture 5b. Now, we'll have to look at Klein's thesis. I'll try to get at the essence of it without getting too bogged down in the details. You will be reading his book, Treaty of the Great King, which presents his thesis. What I'm doing here is basically what you will read, but perhaps pulling out some of the central points. First of all, Klein's thesis is that Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document that, in its total structure, exhibits the classic legal form of the suzerainty treaty of the Mosaic Age. Now, most of you know that the suzerainty treaty is known as among the international treaties discovered from ancient times. Basically, there are two types, the parity treaty, an arrangement between equal parties, and the suzerainty treaty, where you have a great king or suzerain and a subordinate or vassal state. The suzerainty treaty is where you have the great king of the Hittite empire, who is primarily making a treaty relationship with subordinate smaller city-states. The structure of those treaty documents is very similar to the structure of Deuteronomy. So Klein says the book of Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document. Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document that's structured according to the legal structure of the suzerainty treaties of the Mosaic Age. Now, luckily, the Hittite treaties date from about 1400 to 1200 B.C., and those of you who know from Old Testament class know that that reflects the parameters within the Mosaic era, depending on whether you date the Exodus early or late. Now, number two in the outline under Klein's basic approach, and that's his outline of the book. There's a detailed outline, but basically you have a preamble, that's chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, Second, the historical prologue, that's chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 4, verse 29. That's followed by stipulations in chapters 5 to 26, curses and blessings, and covenant ratification in chapters 27 to 30, succession arrangement of the terms of loyalty in chapters 31 to 34. The parts of the treaty, therefore, are preamble, historical prologue, stipulations, curses and blessings, covenant ratification, and succession arrangement and confirmation. Now, we should perhaps, in order to get the connection with the treaty form, go through the structure of the standardized form. First is the preamble, or title. The first section introduces the one who is making the treaty, and that's the great king. Second is the historical prologue. Third are the stipulations. These are divided into two categories, basic and detailed stipulations, and that's important. In the treaty, you get usually some sort of general statement that sort of sums up the obligations of the vassal towards the suzerain in broad general terms, presenting the essence of the stipulations. Then you get the detailed stipulations that are detailed provisions concerning the responsibility of the vassal. In some treaties, there are other elements, such as provision for deposit of a copy of the document in the sanctuary of the great king, as well as in the sanctuary of the vassal, and provision for periodic reading. These elements of the treaty document are apparent to and parallel to Deuteronomy. 
Now, first, as far as Klein's thesis goes, Klein says that, quote, to take Deuteronomy as a covenant renewal document is not incompatible with the book's own representation of a series of addresses by Moses to the people on the plains of Moab, end quote. Klein says on page 29 in the Treaty of the Great King, and I quote him again, To analyze Deuteronomy in terms of a documentary pattern is not incompatible with the obvious facts that the book in its own representation consists almost entirely as a series of addresses. The specific kind of document in view would be orally proclaimed to the vassal at the covenant ceremony. End quote. So Klein takes Deuteronomy as the so-called libretto of the covenant ceremony, sometimes including the response of the vassal, as well as the declarations of the suzerain. In other words, here you have a ceremony, a covenant renewal ceremony, and Deuteronomy records what went on there. You have the address of Moses to the people, and you have the response of the vassal. So he says, and I quote again, When therefore we identify Deuteronomy as a treaty text, we are also recognizing it as the ceremonial words of Moses. It's the libretto of the covenant ceremony, as we said. End quote. You obviously find in the book of Deuteronomy a series of addresses. That is not incompatible with finding the structure of the book, and what is happening is a renewal of the covenant on this occasion. So you have a covenant ceremony involved here. We have the text of it, the words which were spoken and embodied in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's a student question. Then would Klein feel that there was another document behind Deuteronomy? Benoit's answer. The other document behind Deuteronomy is what would come from Sinai as the covenant was initially established there. At Sinai, as far as the document is concerned, primarily you get the Ten Commandments and the Law. The pattern in Exodus is not as easy to see, but when we take Exodus 19 and 24, you have a ratification ceremony and establishment of the covenant at Sinai in which almost all these treaty elements are present. So you can find these elements at the establishment back there at Sinai, but it becomes much clearer though in structure in Deuteronomy and in the renewal of the relationship that had already been established. In all this, you don't have any slavish copying of some Hittite treaty by Moses, but you have a pattern or a form that was familiar to the people in the world at that time. And it seems that when God spoke to Moses and structured his relationship to his people and entered into a covenant with his people, that was first done in a pattern that was familiar of what went on in establishing relationships in the political realm between a great king and the vassal that, of course, was at a different level and different content, but those formal elements you find are reflected in the covenant material. So you have to allow for great latitude and difference. I don't think that the procedure is so much to start with the Hittite treaty and try to force the pattern. I think it is far more significant to start with the biblical material, and you pretty soon become aware that in the covenantal sections of the Old Testament, you find those elements constantly used. That is, the preamble, historical prologue, cursings and blessings, stipulations, and so forth. 
you have what I would call a covenant form within the Old Testament that is discernible, and you can delineate it, whether you ever even knew about the covenant form or not. But then, to have this covenant form document, I think, prompts you to ask these questions. What's the origin of all this? Where did it come from? What's its background? It becomes useful, but more in that direction than trying to force the form onto Deuteronomy from the Hittite material. Second student question. Was it given orally and then written down? Well, probably the great king would draw up a treaty and send his representatives to read that before the people with whom he was concluding the treaty. So you have it both in the oral and written form. Now with Moses, I think that you could say at Sinai, of course, he read all those laws to the people, but it was also written down. So you have the oral and the written forms of Deuteronomy. When you come to Deuteronomy and covenant renewal, there are certain modifications and updates. You're in a new situation. They have been through the wilderness and are going to enter the land of Canaan. Moses is going to die, and there is a transition of leadership involved, and the final focus is on the transition of leadership. Really, the focal point is the covenant renewal ceremony on the plains of Moab. Moses, so to speak, was the representative of the great king before the people, and Moses now is going to disappear. Succession becomes involved, and when succession was involved in the treaty relationship in the political realm, frequently it was evident you updated and renewed the treaty arrangement in a ceremony to make sure that along with the transition in leadership, there was also a transition in the relationship between the parties. So that succession becomes an important element, and you get the treaty and updating it at that point. Well, number five at this point, and I'll just make a brief note. We'll discuss this in more detail later as well. Klein says that Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document, and that is not incompatible with the book's own representation of a series of addresses by Moses. We speak then of Deuteronomy as the ceremonial words of Moses. There is a formal similarity between Klein's approach and von Rad's approach. A formal similarity. In other words, von Rad also says that there is a ceremonial background to the structure of Deuteronomy. And if you remember, we discussed that, and we'll come back to that, too. Von Rad sees the structure of Deuteronomy, but what's the reason for it? There is a ceremonial cultic background to it. The book is a reflection of a cultic ceremony of some sort. Well, Klein is, in a sense, saying the same thing. You have the covenant renewal on the plains of Moab, the structure of the addresses and the flow of the thought, and so forth from that covenant renewal ceremony is reflected in the structure of the book of Deuteronomy, and that in turn reflects this treaty structure. So there is a similarity in von Rad's and Klein's argument. However, there is also an important difference. Von Rad does not honor the integrity of the book, because von Rad hypothetically proposes that the structure of the book comes out of some sort of periodic covenant renewal ceremony held at Shechem in the northern kingdom, and so he dates Deuteronomy later. He doesn't find any basis for mosaic authorship in his structure. Now remember, I am still talking about von Rad in 1938. 
when Rod saw the structure before anyone knew anything about the Hittite treaties and the relationship between the treaty structure and Deuteronomy. Von Rod saw structure in the book of Deuteronomy, and he attributed it to ceremonial cultic backgrounds for the book. He then hypothetically proposed a covenant renewal festival that he proposed was periodically held at Shechem, and the book relates to that, but it's non-mosaic. Now, of course, von Rod has in recent years related his previous ideas to the new material on the Hittite Treaty that we haven't discussed yet. Now, there's George Mendenhall, who wrote an article in 1954, but von Rod wrote in 1938, so Mendenhall is later. Mendenhall's article initiated a whole area of study. It took 10 years after 1954 before this study and his ideas really got going. Klein's work came out in the early 1963. Klein was pretty much at the beginning of this discussion in 1963 and continues to today. There is a 20-year period of time from Mendenhall's initial article, but it hasn't worked its way down and out throughout the general biblical literature. Klein's work is usually dismissed, but I want to discuss that too because there are a number of men that look at the data and come up with different conclusions, and we'll look at how they do that. There are a couple of flies in the ointment. I think Klein is on the right track. I think that the implications of that are so momentous for these people schooled in this critical thinking that they just cannot accept Klein's thesis. So there is a strong relationship between the documents and a way of understanding this. You can't ever speak in terms of proof or anything like that. You can just give argumentation and your evidence. But I do think you can create a model that suggests a way of development, and you can put it over against the other models. In short, you can compare Klein's thesis with other models. Ultimately, the integrity of the book is based on the book itself as scripture, and you have to weigh all these things together. But I think this line of argumentation is a forceful line of argumentation, which supports the integrity of Deuteronomy, linking it back to Moses. You see, there may come a change, but presently anything goes in Europe. There is a whole different world of thought on biblical literature in Europe. Anything that is written in England or America, particularly America, is almost disqualified from the get-go. If some American wrote that, they would hardly look at it. Of course, that is hardly objective, but it is significant. There may be some German national pride in that rejection that may be involved in that too, but that's how things are being handled at this point. Klein has an interesting comment on that basis of the analogy between the suzerainty treaties of the Hittites and the book of Deuteronomy. We had gotten down to point five, and the fifth one being there's a certain formal similarity between Klein's idea and von Rad's in that von Rad spoke of the unity and structure of the book, and elements composing the structure of the book are roughly the same as Klein's. But von Rad hypothesizes some sort of cultic setting as the origin of the treaty form. Klein would propose that the origin of the form comes from the Mosaic Covenant and from the Mosaic Era as the Lord entered into a covenant with his people at Sinai, then, for a very real reason, that covenant was renewed on the plains of Moab. 
The book of Deuteronomy reflects that covenant renewal ceremony. We're going to come back to Von Rod later, but at this moment, I just make this point that I just made. Now, number six in the outline to give you just a few details of what Klein works out. You'll read Klein, so I need not dwell on this at great length. Number six in the outline, Deuteronomy begins as did the ancient treaties. Look at page 30 of Treaty of the Great King, and Klein says, I quote, Deuteronomy begins precisely as the ancient treaties began. These are the words of. That is the expression the treaties open with. You have very similar expressions in the treaty documents. So you have that formal similarity. Deuteronomy begins as did the ancient treaties, end quote. Moses is speaking for God. That becomes very clear. In that sense, the Lord is speaking. These are the words that Moses spoke unto all Israel. Moses is the theocratic representative, and it is precisely the issue that Moses is facing, that theocratic representative, the representative of the great king. His leadership is going to be terminated by death, so there is need for renewal, so that the continuity of the leadership can be recognized and prepared for and perpetuated. We'll come to that shortly. Moses, then, in a sense, is a representative of the great king. Again, these similarities you cannot push to any sort of identical kind of derivation. It is using a similar form, a similar structure, adapted for quite different reasons, purposes, and with quite different content. You don't want to force artificially the treaty form onto the biblical material. It is much better to treat the biblical material with its own integrity but, on the other hand, to see that there is a relationship between Deuteronomy and the Hittite treaties. Number seven of the outline. Klein's approach resolves the two-introduction problem. Remember, we discussed this earlier. Various critics and their analyses have come to the conclusion that there are two introductions, and the book is not a unity for that reason. Also on page 30 of Klein's work, he says, quote, a major problem concerning the unity of Deuteronomy has been the presence of two introductions, chapters 1 to 4 and chapters 5 to 11. It has often been said that neither needs the other. They seem to be independent of each other. End quote. I mentioned to you what Noth tried to do, taking the first of those introductions as the introduction to Deuteronomistic history as a whole, running from Deuteronomy to Second Kings, and the second introduction is the introduction to the book of Deuteronomy itself. Continuing with Klein on page 31, he says, But Noth's view and every attempt to separate Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 4 from its original core is contradicted, and the supposed problem of the two introductions is obviated and the real structure is further clarified by these facts and historical prologue regularly follows the preamble and precedes the stipulations in the suzerainty treaties. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 5 to chapter 4 verse 49 qualifies admirably as a historical prologue. Quote. When covenants were renewed, the history was brought up to date. Agreeably, Moses takes up the narrative of Yahweh's previous rule at Sinai, where the covenant was originally made and he carries that history up to the present, emphasizing the most recent events, the Transjordanian conquest and its consequences. 
In other words, the historical prologue is updated at the time of the covenant renewal. Now, if you look at the suzerain treaty structure, you have the preamble, the historical prologue, and third is the stipulations. Remember, those stipulations were divided into basic, fundamental obligations, summary or generalized stipulations, and then the specific, more detailed stipulations. And the third division were the stipulations, and this is the reason that the third division in Deuteronomy can be identified with chapters 5 to 26. Funrad has noted the above included 5 to 11, which comes before a historical survey. It's the introduction. Others separating chapters 5 to 11 from chapters 1 to 4 take 5 to 11 as the introduction to chapters 12 to 26. Klein's thesis is, and I quote here, Deuteronomy 5 to 11 must be recognized as expounding the covenant way of life just as do chapters 12 to 26. Together they declare the suzerain's demands. The difference is between Deuteronomy chapters 5 to 11 and chapters 12 to 26, and that represents differing treatment of this one theme. The former section, chapters 5 to 11, represents in more general and comprehensive terms the primary demands of the Lord, both its principle and program. The latter section, that would be 12 to 26, adds the more specific requirements between Deuteronomy and the treaty in more detailed points, and that can open up new insights into the meaning of certain words and concepts that you find in the book of Deuteronomy. End quote. The correspondence between the treaty form and the book of Deuteronomy in specific words used and certain concepts portrayed is also an area where there is a lot of possible study to be done. Klein points out a few things of that sort. One illustration on page 24, he says, increased emphasis on the covenantal concepts of the law. End quote. The law is that central element in Deuteronomy, chapters 5 to 26, recall the stipulations, and he says, increased emphasis on the covenantal context of the law underscores the essential continuity in the function of the law in the Old and New Testament. Now, I think there is a point that should be elaborated here, but in the structure of the treaty you have the great king who does certain beneficent acts for the vassal with gracious acts involved. The vassal's response is to be one of thanksgiving, which would be one of the demands of the stipulations. I suppose there are also certain sanctions that reinforce that obligation. But you might say grace precedes law in the sense that in Deuteronomy God has chosen his certain people. He has redeemed his people, brought them out of Egypt, and cared for them in the wilderness. Now, here are your obligations. Those obligations are to be performed, by the way, with a sense of thanksgiving and love to the great king who has done so much good for them. To quote a New Testament idea, If you love me, keep my commandments, as Jesus Christ said. There is a certain fundamental unity and context of the obligations in the law that is underscored by this understanding of the structure of Deuteronomy and of the nature of the covenant. This leads me right to the next point. There's been an article written on the covenant use of the term ahav, love, love of God in the book of Deuteronomy. I think I have that listed in your bibliography under Deuteronomy in the treaty form, and it's by W.L. Moran. 
And it's in the work, The Ancient Near Eastern Background of the Love of God in Deuteronomy, which appeared in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly, Volume 25, in 1963. There's also D.J. McCarthy in his work, Notes on the Love of God in the Father-Son Relationship in Deuteronomy between Yahweh and Israel, and that's in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly, Volume 27, of 1965. It is a very interesting article. Now, in this book, D.R. Hillers, and his book is Covenant, The History of a Biblical Idea, Hillers summarizes some of the material on page 152 of his work. I quote Hillers. The love of God is the peculiar stress of Deuteronomy, and it is still more remarkable the book conserves some of the old covenantal ideas. End quote. Now, Hiller's idea is not so much the mosaic argument. He focuses on its structure and finds the language interesting. He says, and I quote him again, Love is used in such a variety of ways in Western history, and considerable scholarly interest is in discriminating the various species of affection to which the term has been applied. Deuteronomy's brand of love is an especially interesting one for two reasons— it represents a type of love that is different from most recent conceptions, and it is the mother load of much other influential biblical teaching about love for God. Love in Deuteronomy can be commanded. Chapter 6, verse 5, you read, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This means living in a relation of worship and service to the deity. Now, look at chapter 11, verse 1, and we read, You shall love Yahweh your God, keep his observances, his statutes, and his commandments for all time. The whole commandment in 11.22 can be summed up thus, Love Yahweh your God, walk in all his ways to please him. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, we read, To love Yahweh is linked inseparably with to serve him. We have heard these words so often that their doctrine does not seem surprising. But we need to remember that one theory of love, a very potent and influential one, holds that duty and love are incompatible. Here they are nearly identical. And that is the quote from Hillers. Hillers continues, and I quote, It is W. L. Moran, that is the article we turned to earlier, who has identified the language of treaties and covenants as the same sort of conception as the love of God, although there may be earlier examples. The first common use of love in the language of diplomacy is found in the language of the Elamarna tablets in the relation that exists between brothers as equal partners in a, quote, treaty of love, end quote. The treaty texts you get arrangements between brothers or equal partners, and their relationship is one of love. I quote again from the Amarna letters, May my brother preserve love towards me ten times more than did his father. We will go on loving my brother fervently. This love is not only a feeling between equal partners, however, but it is the way that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, regards his vassal. That's also in the Amarna letters. And I quote again, if the king, my lord, loves his faithful servant, let him send back the three men. End quote. Now, that's from one of the vassals. I quote again. Above all, it is the way the vassals were to consider their lord, to love as equal to being servant. 
my lord, just as I love the king, my lord, so does the king happy. All these kings are servants of my lord. End quote. And again, I'm quoting from the documents. In Esarhaddon's treaty, Esarhaddon is a later Assyrian king, love is commanded as a duty towards a suzerain. We read, You will love Ashurbanipal, Esarhaddon's son, as yourself. I won't go through a lot of the rest of the material. You can read the article, but what it boils down to is love in the treaty text becomes synonymous with obedience. When you love the Lord, you obey the stipulations, so that love can be commanded then. You are to love the Lord. You are to obey the stipulations where your love is demonstrated in that obedience. There are many illustrations of that sort of thing where you find similar use of words in treaty documents that give you some insight into a lot of the biblical material. Now again, you don't want to read all the biblical material under the total control of extra-biblical material, but extra-biblical material, as far as thought forms and those sort of things that were extant at the time the documents originated, help one understand connotations of the meaning that we find in the biblical material. There are many similarities in language, in concepts, in specific points that can be pointed to in treaty texts and found also in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, you'll notice more of that as we progress through the course, but that is another area where there is a great deal of work that has been done already and a great deal more work that can be done. I'd like to move now to a new heading, capital C, just to review, to get continuity, and that is Meredith Klein making use of a form-critical approach that honors the integrity of the book, but a new perspective on the nature of structure of Deuteronomy, which in turn had implications for interpretation and date. We looked at what his basic thesis was and what the fundamental ideas of it were. Now, capital D is the covenant form in the Old Testament and its historical implication, the present state of affairs in the Deuteronomy debate. And number one under capital D, and I'll use this technical term, Zitzimleben, situation in life, the Zitzimleben of the covenant form and the historical implications of the setting. There is widespread agreement, pretty much across the board, that the covenant form is a discernible and important literary feature of the Old Testament as a whole. That has come up over the last 10 to 15 years, but there is in general agreement there that this is discernible and that it is present in the Old Testament. The treaty covenant nexus can be found with no debate in Exodus 24 at Sinai, and there is currently universal agreement that it is found in Deuteronomy. It's found in Joshua chapter 24 and in numerous other passages. So there is this large-scale agreement of the covenant form in that it is an important literary feature of the Old Testament. There is, however, no corresponding agreement concerning the origin of this phenomenon and, therefore, in the historical implications that may or may not be drawn from the presence of the form. It's admitted that it's there, but there is no corresponding agreement on the origin of the form and, therefore, on the historical implications that can be drawn from its presence. There is an attempt made, for example, by Klein and others to draw historical implications from the presence of the treaty form in the Old Testament. They know it exists, but what are we going to do with it? 
What conclusions can you draw from the fact that it does exist? Some scholars resist drawing historical conclusions from this acknowledged presence of the treaty form. For example, it is not so important, but I just want to give you an idea of the various positions. There's a book called The Covenant Formulary by Klaus Bolzer. It is a book that traces the occurrence of covenant form throughout the Old Testament passage by passage. In that book, on page 49, he comments on the original article by Mendenhall that we said was in 1954. Remember, Mendenhall is the one initiating this whole discussion in his article, Law and Covenant, in the Ancient Near East. Mendenhall started this whole discussion. After commenting on Mendenhall's article, Balter says of Mendenhall, and I'm quoting, He's more interested in historical questions than a present work which limits itself to the form-critical approach. No doubt further conclusions in the historical sphere can be drawn on the basis of this form, but I consider it methodologically dangerous to bring both sets of questions together prematurely. End quote. He resists moving towards historical conclusions drawn from the presence of the treaty form in the Old Testament. Now, a Roman Catholic scholar reviewing Bolzer's work, The Covenant Formulary, says this about Bolzer. Bolzer insists throughout on the separation between the form-critical investigation and the historicity of the episode's narrator. He is reserved in matters historical. In this way, Bolzer avoids hasty conclusions. It's disappointing that Bolzer refuses to make historical conclusions. Bolzer is not willing to proffer a definite time or conclusions in relation to the origin of this covenant form in Deuteronomy or in the Old Testament as a whole. D.J. McCarthy, whom we've seen before in an article reviewing a German book, says of this treaty covenant analogy, quote, No doubt too much has been claimed for the analogy, and especially illegitimate historical conclusions have been drawn from it. End quote. He goes on to say, quote, Still, this does not invalidate the evidence that there is an analogy. End quote. The analogy is there, but even McCarthy refuses to make any historical conclusions. The point I'm trying to make at this juncture is that they resist drawing any historical conclusions on the basis of the literary forms that everyone acknowledges are in the Old Testament. Now, caution should be used in utilizing the form-critical method to draw historically reliable conclusions because it is precisely in this area that there has been such wild theories opposed to the origin of the covenant form, and there is an enormous subjectivity that can become involved in that whole process. So caution is in order here. However, the presence of a certain form and its elements presupposes a historical setting that has given rise to the form in question. If you have a literary form of a particular definable type, that form presupposes a certain setting or Zitzenleben that has given rise to the form in question in the first place. Here's an example. You have an advertisement. You know where that comes from because of the kind of literature that utilizes it. So, literary forms do presuppose certain kinds of historical settings, and it is easy to locate the form, but can one determine the historical setting that lies behind it? So, the judicious attempt to delineate a setting for a particular form can be a useful endeavor, and I think, in the case of the covenant form, you have this 
form in the Old Testament, and the question of when and how it was adopted in Israel is a matter of fundamental significance. If you avoid that question of when and how it came into Israel, you really impoverish the study of this form. Perhaps one can look for indications of the significance of the form if you don't know where it came from. So the question of origin is certainly an order and has a great deal of significance. The origin of and the adoption of this treaty form in Israel indeed is significant, especially if we're concerned with date, as we'll see later. In many instances, the destination of the situation is to find a particular form purely hypothetically based on the imagination of a particular scholar who has no evidence for what he proposes. That is wrong since it is based on little evidence and is totally hypothetical. I think you have to be very leery of that. But on the other hand, given the form and its palpable presence in the text of the Old Testament, where did that form come from? What is the explanation of its origin? What situation in life is best for explaining its adoption in the biblical literature? When in Israel's history would there be a situation that would give rise to such a form that had such an enormous influence in the whole history of the nation of Israel? It is an interesting area of study, and there is a lot of evidence in the Bible itself, as well as the extra-biblical data pertaining to these questions. Under this question, then, number one, the Zitzimleben, or situation in life of the covenant form and the historical implications of the setting, we have small a, the nature of the covenant form and its origin. The question arises, is it cultic or prophetic in terms of its origin? That becomes a significant question, especially if you look at von Rad, who sees it as cultic and ceremonial. Well, our time is up. I guess we'll have to pick up here next time. That is the end of Lecture 5b by Robert Benoit on Deuteronomy.